So uh, keeping the main thing, the main thing, uh, we're going to be journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I would summarize the theme of this book uh, with these three phrases. I would love for you to write these down in your phone, on your notes, write these down somewhere on your forehead, on your neighbor's forehead, write it down somewhere, uh, because these are going to be coming up a lot over the course of the next 12 weeks. The theme of 1 Corinthians could be summed up like this. I want you to be united in Christ, to edify one another and to advance the gospel. Be united in Christ to edify, which means to build up one another into greater Christ-likeness, and to get on with the work together of advancing the gospel. And these three things are not separate things. They are interdependent with one another, and each one depends on the other in order for itself to take place. Now, one way we could summarize those three things, to use Paul's language in uh, second, and 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9 is that we are called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ. You and I have been called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that word fellowship literally means partnership. So it's not just about gathering, it's not just about getting together, but it's partnership with Christ, partnership with one another. It's presence and participation together, being united in Christ, edifying one another, and advancing the gospel keeping the main thing the main thing. Today, I want to talk to you about when the main thing becomes the hardest thing. When the main thing becomes the hardest thing. Let's read the first 10 verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It begins like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. That's the traditional way of opening a letter in Roman culture in the first century, introducing the writers to the church of God, which is at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Paul summarizing the spiritual gifts that were prevalent in First Corinthian, in, sorry, in the Corinthian church there, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like a pretty awesome church. There's a lot of surprises in store. Who will also confirm you to the end? that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Everybody say, same thing. That there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Everybody say, same mind. And in the same judgment. Say, same judgment. So to uh, jump into this message and this series, there's a few questions that we have to answer right off the bat. The first question is this, who was Paul? Like if we're gonna spend 12 weeks studying a letter that this guy wrote, we should know a little bit about who Paul is. And Paul, before he became a follower of Jesus, was a Pharisee. Some of you would be familiar with who the Pharisees were. Uh, certainly the group of people in the gospel accounts who were uh, most opposed to Jesus, to his teachings, to his mission, and Paul belonged to that group of people. The Pharisees were strict practitioners and teachers of the Jewish 
law. And because of Paul's adherence to the Pharisaic uh, form of Jewish religion, that caused him to be a very uh, uh, inflamed persecutor of Christ and persecutor of the church. And he spent his time and his energy trying to tear down the church until one day he had an encounter with Jesus himself. And in a moment, he went from persecutor of Christ to lover of Christ. And he went from persecutor of the church to builder of the church. Paul literally got saved on the way to do violence and sin to Christians. Like en route, on the road, headed to Damascus. Paul has it in his mind, I'm gonna see that they're arrested. I'm gonna see that they're executed. Paul is on the way to sin against Christ and Christians. And on the road, Jesus appears to him and Paul gets saved in that moment. And that should minister to you and I today about the fact that nobody anywhere is too far gone that Jesus could not reach out and rescue that person. I'm talking about the people that you disagree with politically. I'm talking about the people that you disagree with in the depths of your heart that nobody is too far gone whatsoever that Jesus cannot reach out and grab a hold. Does not matter the darkness that that person is caught up in. Does not matter the confusion that is plaguing that person's mind. Nobody is too far gone that Jesus Christ is not able to reach out and rescue that person. And when Jesus rescues a person, he does it for a purpose. God does not save us just to leave us idle in our lives. God saves us and then calls us into purpose. He commissions us. And Paul's purpose was very special and unique. It was that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles, that is to the non-Jews. He had a distinct calling from Jesus to bring the gospel beyond ethnic Israel into the lives of those who were completely ignorant to the God of the Scriptures. Interestingly enough, this calling on Paul's life, it involved the gifts that he had from his former life. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards by memory, friends and family. Like this guy knew the scriptures inside and out and God took that talent, God took that gift, he took that passion and he repurposed it for his new calling. Because who else would be so qualified to draw out new covenant truth from Old Covenant Spirit-inspired word. That's why it's so important to understand that when you come to Christ, God doesn't want to give you a personality bypass. When you come to Christ, God does not want to sever you from the things that you are passionate about. He wants to reuse those things for his glory and for the upbuilding of the church. Paul was an absolute ninja of the Jewish scriptures. And he was incredibly well-equipped for the unique calling that God had on his life. Let's talk a little bit about what Paul did after his salvation. Obviously, he wrote a lot of letters. Two-thirds of your New Testament is made up of the letters of Paul. Um, but what did he do with his daily life? Well, Paul went on a lot of missionary trips to foreign cities, and he preached the gospel to strangers, and some of them put their faith in Christ, and then Paul would form communities of faith called churches out of those people. He'd like put these strangers together and say, okay, cool, now you gotta be a family. You know, that's gonna be hard, figure it out. And then Paul would appoint leadership over the churches and then he would bounce and he would go on to the next city and preach the gospel, but he would write letters back to the churches that he had formerly planted and just checking in with them and seeing how they were doing. And some of the time they weren't doing so hot. Case in point, the Corinthians. And during all of this, this, this missionary lifestyle that Paul was living, he was now being persecuted by the people that he used to be in step with. Let's talk a little bit about why this specific letter was written to the Corinthian church. Well, Corinth was a uh, wealthy port city, 
And uh, Paul traveled into Corinth around the early 50s AD, preaching the gospel there. And uh, he preached it very successfully. If you want to read a little bit about Paul's time uh, in Corinth, go to Acts chapter 18. And that details his time spent there. And there's an important verse in that, um, uh, in that chapter that says, Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So we know that Paul was very successful in his ministry in Corinth, and many believed. In fact, he spent about a year and a half there, building the church, developing relationship, and after that year and a half, he would move on. So Paul obviously has a very strong bond with the Corinthians. But what's important for you and I to understand is that bond was severely tested, and that bond was very tried, and it was very stretched, and Paul's relationship with the Corinthian people was not always an easy thing. In fact, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you'll see that Paul is constantly trying to build up his relationship with these people. And that probably speaks a little bit to the fact that the relationships that are deepest in our lives are the ones that require the most tending. The relationships that are most long-lasting in our lives are the ones that require the most work on our part to keep that relationship healthy and thriving. And certainly in a, in a time like 2020 where there's distance and there's disconnection, relationships seem to be such an easy thing to throw away. But actually what the Holy Spirit would be saying to us is, hey, if it gets hard, that's a sign that it's time to lean in, not back out. Those issues between Paul and the Corinthians were exactly the reason that he was writing his letters to them, encouraging them to be united in Christ, to edify one another, and to advance the gospel. So what's our goal for this series? Well, our goal is very simple. We want to take these ancient pastoral instructions, these theological truths, and we want to help us apply them to our modern context, combating division, not just for unity's sake, but for the sake of this church's edification, all of our building up, and for the sake of this church's mission to reach uh, Los Angeles. We want to be united in Christ together. We want to edify one another so that we can advance in the mission of the gospel. And this letter is a perfect springboard for us to speak about those things. And Paul tells us why he's qualified to teach us about these things in his opening words when he says in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now that word apostle there is so, so important. Paul is not um, being presumptuous about his role with the Corinthian church. He is simply operating in the office that Jesus Christ called him to operate in. That word apostle means messenger. It means ambassador. It means sent one. And it was a very important word to Jesus himself. Jesus sent his 12 apostles with his message into the world and he would confirm that message through the power of his Holy Spirit. The apostles were extensions of Christ, and they were his faithful witness to the world. And I'm not hammering on this for no reason. It's actually very important that you understand how Jesus himself thought about his apostles. If you look in John 14, verses 25 and 26, uh, Jesus is speaking to the 12 apostles during the Last Supper. He says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you. And that you there is literally the apostles. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 16, 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, we can read those scriptures and we can draw out application from that and understand that because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us into truth. He wants to lead us into the things of God. Those words from Jesus apply to us, but their original application 
incarnation is Jesus talking to 12 men saying the Holy Spirit's gonna come, come upon you and he's gonna remind you of all the stuff that we talked about for the last three years so that you can teach people about me and write scripture. So the apostles were very important to Jesus and they were uh, part of his mission for reaching the world. So their special relationship, their unique relationship, their unique calling as apostles, that in conjunction with the fact that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, qualified them to teach authoritatively to the church. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not an apostle. Like, I can't stand up here, I can't write scripture to you. I have the same Holy Ghost, but I don't have the same calling as Paul. I have the same Holy Spirit, but I don't have the same calling as Peter. And we are all filled with the same Holy Spirit, but it's important that we understand that Jesus viewed his apostles as having a very distinct task. And that task would be to set up the church for the remainder of this age until the return of Christ. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, which means he came later than the the 12, but he was still an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. He was affirmed. Um, by Jesus' original 12 apostles and his writings were confirmed to be, quote, scripture by the apostle Peter himself. Why am I bothering to tell you all this? Well, just because I think fun history lessons are awesome. (laughs) No, I'm telling you this because we live in a day and an age where sometimes people interpret the words of Jesus in ways that discard the words of the apostles in order to align with either modern culture or postmodern culture, or just to make the scriptures, the words of Jesus, suit their own preferences. But when we do that, it misses out on the fact that the apostles were the dudes sent by Jesus himself. They are the ones whom the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance, what Jesus taught and guided them into all truth and all things. And this is why the words of Jesus have to be understood in conjunction of the entirety of the New Testament. In other words, you should seek to understand what Paul thinks about fill in the blank before you care at all about what any modern day person thinks about that thing. This is how the early church did it. This is how the earliest churches did it. Did you know that somewhere between eight and 11 of the epistles were written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written? Which means that the earliest followers of Jesus knew Jesus not because of Matthew's testimony, but because of Paul's testimony. The earliest followers of Jesus understood Jesus because of the epistles that were written to them, instructing them in how to live a godly life. This matters because you should know what Paul thinks before you care about what that person on Instagram thinks. This is all just another way of saying you should care what the Bible says about the issues of life. But rather than just saying, hey, believe the Bible, I'm trying to ground that in reality for you. So you understand Jesus' relationship to the apostles and their relationship to the scriptures. And let me tell you, 1 Corinthians covers a whole lot of ground when it comes to the issues of life. We're gonna talk about wisdom and maturity. We're gonna talk about biblical unity. We're gonna talk about earthly work and heavenly rewards, sexual immorality, marriage, singleness, and sex, spiritual gifts, and so much more. So buckle up, buttercup, because it's gonna be a great 12 weeks together. So today Paul's going to talk to us in chapter 1 about unity, diversity, and why you should stop believing everything you read on social media. (laughs) Verse 2, 
Paul's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. First thing we need to draw out of that is Paul is writing to who? To the church of God at Corinth. And we are obviously the church of God at Los Angeles. What do we need to know from that? We need to know that God owns the church. God is the oversight of the church. God is sovereign over the church. God is responsible for the church. God is the presiding authority over the church. Nobody else, no human, government, no individual person is over the church. God owns the church. Now, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means assembly. Like, it wasn't a special word just for Christians. They used that word because the word synagogue was already taken by the Jews, and they needed another, another word to describe their getting together. It's the Greek word that means assembly, and there are a lot of assemblies in life, right? Like, we can look around our own culture today and be like, yep, there's an assembly. Like, CrossFit is an assembly. Comic-Con is an assembly. SAG is an assembly, South by Southwest is an assembly, universities are assemblies, there are assemblies everywhere, but the church is distinct and unique from all of those assemblies because it is the one assembly of God, the assembly where when we get together, we should expect something different to take place that is not taking place at Comic-Con. When we get together, we should have an expectation and belief that something can happen that isn't happening in the Screen Actors Guild. Come on. When we get together, we have an understanding that this is the, 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 this is the church of God and God is in the room. And the church belongs to God in every place and is under his jurisdiction alone. You see, there's this buzzword, right, community. And people find community in all kinds of places. They find community in coffee shops. They find community in their exercise class. Communities are everywhere. This is not just a community. This is the assembly of God's people. And when we get together, we've recognized that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst to do amazing things. And that's why we do stuff like pray. Like we're not just here to sing some songs and hear a message and we've inverted our service flow a little bit because we wanna put more emphasis on prayer and we wanna put more emphasis on empowering the saints to pray for one another and to cover each other's needs in prayer. Paul says we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. So here's something that you and I have to understand, and this is not a, a small point. This is actually really important, that the people in the church are there because they've been called by God to be there. Now, not everybody in the church is in the body of Christ. Jesus talked about that. At the end of the age, he's gonna separate goats from sheep, wheat from tares. So just because somebody is in the room doesn't mean that they're in the body of Christ. But if somebody is in the body of Christ, they are there because they've been called by God to be there, literally sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Every person's place in the body of Jesus Christ is determined by that calling, by that fact, not because they are well-liked, not because they are popular, not because they are the right demographic, but because God called them to the body. Why am I emphasizing that? I'm emphasizing that because we live in a time that really emphasizes something called group identity. And group identity is a huge thing for our postmodern culture and for social justice scholarship. And group identity is based upon ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, able-bodiedness, uh, how big you are, literally your weight. This group identity that permeates through our culture is also what informs popular views on whether or not someone stands in the position of an oppressor 
or of the oppressed. And that's when you can start rolling into subjects like intersectionality, which teaches essentially that however many minority groups you check off in life, the more oppressed you are. What an empowering message. And however few amount of minority groups you check, the more of an oppressor you are. This is the truth according to social justice scholarship. And in case you think I'm just being kind of exaggerative and highlighting something that really isn't existent in our world, friends and family, it is, and it connects to the way that we think about church in a huge way. This group identity way of thinking is everywhere. A few months ago, Nicole and I, we went up to Napa, and uh, we wanted a few days away from the kids because kids are crazy. And uh, we were hanging out up there and, you know, doing the wine tasting thing and um, when we get to the end of our trip, we've purchased some bottles of wine, and we want to bring them back with us to Los Angeles. And one of the, um, one of the employees at the wine tasting room said, oh, well, at the airport of Napa, you can actually travel back with your wine. It's like a special thing that you can do here, because obviously that's why everybody's here. It's like, oh, great. So we bring our wine to the airport, and we go, and we check our bags, and then we're going through security. I'm carrying my, um, my, my wine bottles, and we go to security, and like, oh, you can't you can't bring those on the plane. I'm like, oh, really? Because the lady at the wine tasting room said that I could, not that she has any authority here. I'm like, yeah, sorry, you can't bring them on the plane. I was like, okay. So I leave Nicole in security. I run back to the, the desk where you check in, and I'm like, oh, hey, um, I actually need to, to check these. And you're like, oh, sorry, honey. Your bags have already gone through. It, it's too late. I'm like, oh, shoot, okay. Uh, here, you take them. So I literally give the employee these bottles of wine and I go back into the security line and I find Nicole. She's like, did you do it? I'm like, no, no, I didn't do it. The bags are already checked. He's like, what? No, you, we have to have the wine. Now, for those of you who know my wife, you know that um, there are multiple occasions in my life where I bring back the report and she's not satisfied with the report, so she sends me back to remedy the problem. This has come up multiple times in our marriage. One time it almost resulted in me getting hit in the head with a wrench by a repairman who wasn't happy with me pushing back on the price that he wanted to charge us, which Nicole was not happy about. So, so she sends me back, and I, she's, this time she says, take your backpack and go and say, hey, I want to check my backpack, put the wine in there. So I go back to the desk, and the lady's back is turned to the, to the counter. So she can't see me, and I don't see any line, right? Like small little podunk airport. There's not a lot of organization going on, and the lady's back is turned. So I just call out, uh, excuse me, and she turns around, and I say, hey, I got my backpack. Can I put the wine in the backpack and check the bottles? And she's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Checking bags is done, okay? Your wine is mine now. Deal with it, dude. I'm like, okay, great. She, didn't, she wasn't that rude. So I, I turn around. I, I go to walk away, and then I hear this voice call out to me, this kind, sweet, gracious voice calls out and goes, hey, as a straight white male, you should know better. And I almost want to say, how dare you assume I'm a male? I'm telling you, like, you know, like when, like, you, like, you study something, like, because I've been doing a lot of reading about this year, about that this year, and then, like, you encounter it in the wild, you're like, oh, gosh, it's actually real. Like, if you're, like, you, like, you study lions, and then you go into the forest, and you meet a lion, like, oh, wow, lions in real life. Instead, I just kind of, like, chuckled awkwardly and walked away, because I literally didn't know what to say, nor did I know what I did wrong, except for being a straight white male, which puts me in three categories of oppressor. So this kind of like group think, this group identity is everywhere. And I tell that story just to demonstrate how much our society is inclined to think in terms of group identity. And not just that, because groups are real, but to pit 
groups against one another in the name of justice. And while there is truth to there being differing experiences across differing groups of people, what we have to acknowledge as the body of Christ is a greater truth that ultimately our group identity is that we are all one in Christ Jesus. We've been sanctified, that is set apart in Christ, called to be saints, not just with one another, but what does Paul say? With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean that local churches shouldn't care about diversity. Obviously, we should care about diversity. But the measure of diversity isn't found in the way of the world as some quota to hit. Diversity in a church should be reflective of the region, the city, the neighborhoods that a church is reaching. And the way that the New Testament talks about diversity has less to do with just the color of our skin or what gender we are and more to do with Jew and non-Jew, spiritual gifts, socioeconomic status. And the Corinthian church had diversity in all of these areas, which caused a lot of tension and therefore created a lot of opportunity for maturity. The place that the New Testament would bring us to is actually antithetical to the world. It's not grouping up and delineating ourselves from one another. It's being in Christ together, using our diverse gifts and talents to serve one another and edify one another and to advance the gospel together. In other words, even in our diversity, God is faithful, verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship, that is the partnership of his son, Jesus Christ. Diversity serves its purpose when it unifies and edifies, and it takes a unified, edified church to advance the gospel. You want to leave some pre-COVID church mentalities and habits behind? Stop thinking of yourself as disconnected from the body of Christ. Stop prioritizing who you are out here as different from who you are in here. Be one in Christ Jesus. Uh, be united together in Christ Jesus. Focus on edifying, building one another up, caring for one another, serving one another, loving one another, laying down your lives for one another. And in that, we will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul stressing this group identity in Christ thing? Well, because of verses 11 through 13. And this is where he introduces the problem. He says, it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, who is Peter. And some of you are like, screw that, I'm of Christ. Can you say screw that in church? I don't know, I just did. <laughs> is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, Paul is writing this letter to them, addressing their division and calling them into fellowship. Why? Because fellowship was their greatest struggle. But Paul was telling all of them to humble themselves and to figure it out. And each person in the Corinthian church, no matter their circumstances in life, had a role to play in that unity. Jesus does not show partiality to any, but rather invites all into the participation of what he's building. And in Corinth and in LA, that means laying down our concern for where we find status, because that is what divides. And that seeking for status played itself out in a lot of ways uh, in the Corinthian church, but the first thing that Paul actually addresses here, which I think has incredible modern-day application, was the status and reputation that people drew from whatever public speaker 
they aligned with, which is why some of them are saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Look at this quote from a commentary. It says, a first century orator or public speaker was expected to produce carefully crafted speeches which drew attention to his skillful use of rhetorical conventions. Sounds a lot like how people think about church. Oratory was called magic because it was seen to bewitch the hearers. The content of the speech was immaterial, as an unimportant, only the performance mattered. They spoke to gain the adulation of the audiences. The content of the speech was immaterial, only the performance mattered. Might this have some modern day application? Well, surprise, fellowship is also one of the hardest things for us as well, right? Like fellowship can be difficult because we get put together with people who are otherwise strangers with all kinds of different life experiences and the Holy Spirit's like, great, figure it out. Y'all get on with being the church, be united in Christ, edify one another, advance the gospel. Come on, get on with that whole thing. Oh, really? I, I don't know if I I would have ever talked to that person had we not been in the same church together. Like, Holy Spirit, shh, don't talk like that. Come on, be united in Christ, edify one another, and advance the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. And funnily enough, fellowship is hard for the modern day church for many of uh, the same reasons that Paul is touching on right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. How often do you see others or even find yourself echoing, amplifying, and aligning with the loudest, most impressive, most impassioned voices in the proverbial room regardless of that message's substance? We do it all the time. There's a really, really funny story about that that happened just recently. Obviously, country's a little cray-cray right now. The whole capital thing, that was nuts. We, we more than lament that. That was bad news bears, right? And in, on the wake of that, um, there's obviously all this talk in, in Congress about impeaching President Trump and yada, yada. And somebody had tweeted a couple weeks ago, basically, why are they impeaching him? Um, he's only got like two weeks left. What's the point? Somebody responded to that, that tweet and they listed out four reasons. It's, uh, well, he loses his security detail, loses his pension, can't run for office again, and something else, right? So he tweeted that in response to the question. His tweet, his response went absolutely viral. Like over 130,000 people retweeted these four reasons for why we should impeach President Trump. And that tweet absolutely took the internet by storm. And then this journalist saw the tweet and goes, those things aren't true. So he found the guy who originally tweeted it and said, hey, I want to uh, like interview you. And this is his summary of the thing. He said, so I spoke to Ben Costello, tweeter of the inaccurate mega viral impeachment tweet, great title, to tell him it was wrong and that I'd be doing a fact check. He said good naturedly, tear it a new one. Go for it, baby. He said he's just a quote nobody dude who saw the info on his Facebook feed. Costello said he never knew if the, if, if the info he tweeted was true. It just showed up on his Facebook and quote made me feel good and he thought he'd share. He said I don't want to mess up the world. I just wanted to make me feel good and it turns out it made a lot of people feel good. So this guy tweets these four facts that he thought were true that ended up not being true but 130,000 people heralded as truth impassioned about their position. Now, obviously, whether or not we should impeach Trump is not my point, not going there. The point is how easily we sometimes get caught up in protecting territory and marking out territory and making statements that might not even be real, even when those statements have real ramifications. Sometimes the position we're feverishly fighting for, I'd end up being a vapor. At the very least, it might not even have the heart of Christ, the substance of the Holy Spirit. 
Hey, let's be less quick to demand that people meet us on our marked out territory. Marking territory is the quickest way to lose sight of our common ground in Christ Jesus. And marking the territory is exactly how the world behaves. Commentary goes on to say that the pupils or disciples of a secular teacher had to give exclusive loyalty to him. Traditionally, they engaged in quarrels with rival pupils over the merits of their mentors who were also by tradition jealous of each other. In other words, the students of the teachers, they would fight with one another. The teachers themselves would fight from one another. And there's all this popularity contest for who's the most impressive, for who's the best. And it happens in our society. It happens in pretty much all societies because we end up valuing impressive words. And many times impressive words negate whether or not the words are material. And when I say impressive, what I mean is something that makes us feel whether it makes us feel good or it makes us feel outraged or whatever it is. And obviously a false tweet is a funny example, but sometimes impressive words capture the attention of audiences, audiences about much deeper matters. Things about, things which the scriptures actually have something to say about. And why does this happen? Why does it happen today? Well, it happens today for the same reasons that happened in Corinth. The reason the Corinthian Christians were still operating like the culture of secular Corinth basically boiled down to this. They didn't have a view of eternity that was different from the secular Corinthians' view of eternity. Literally, in, in Corinth, the believers there had been tricked into, de into denying the resurrection. And that's what all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. Paul saying, we wouldn't be Christians if there was no resurrection. But because they denied the resurrection, they didn't view eternity the way the believer is meant to view eternity. And so that infected the way that they viewed the here and now. And in order to defend their own immorality and their carnal and divisive attitudes, they rested on this denial of the resurrection. And they adopted this motto that was popular in Corinth that goes like this, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And Paul quotes that to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, today's all we got. And so let's just, you know, make the most of it and have a bunch of fun and do whatever and live our lives in, in the freedom of Jesus. <laughs> in the freedom of grace, because, you know, God's going to cover all our sin anyway, and, and let's just do what we want. And I just wonder if we might also be in a moment in time where the propensity to lose sight of eternity has set in amongst the church, a moment where life is so plagued with problems and struggles and tensions and divisions that heaven and eternity feels light years away. So not unlike the Corinthians, we've adopted similar mottos and maybe for you that motto is like, let us tweet and post because every wrong thing needs to be corrected right now today. Or maybe for you it's let us cut and run because today's just too much. Maybe for you this year it's been let us use and abuse because I can't run from today but I don't wanna feel today. Maybe for you it's been let us excuse ourselves from responsibility, let us excuse ourselves from community, from the assembly of God because it just feels like too much to carry. 2020 has been the epitome of let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. <laughs> has that temporal way of thinking developed some unhealthy habits in you? Has that temporal way of thinking developed some unhealthy outlooks about life? And in order to justify our own less than Christ-like behavior, 
and I'm not just talking about like basic levels of morality. I'm talking about the way that we, that we view other people and the way that we lay our own lives down for other people has our temporal outlook marred the way our lives are supposed to look. And it leads either to apathy or humanistic problem solving, right? You're like either I don't want any of this and you're just backing all the way out or you go into this like humanism mode where like God can take a seat. I'm gonna handle this problem on my own but humanistic ways of solving problems doesn't solve problems. It actually multiplies problems. Your problems have babies and you're trying to solve them without God. I rap on the side, it's no big deal, just get used to it. So what's Paul's solution to this division that he sees in Corinth? He says this, I plead with you, brethren, in verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Another Paul's solution is that they have unity of thought, that they have unity of belief, unity of confession, because you can't really be unified in Christ without drawing some boundaries around unity of thought. Even in diversity, there are things in the body of Christ that we cannot afford to be diverse about. Most importantly, the one to whom we give allegiance and the one from whom biblical doctrine flows. And Paul's summary for unity of thought, which will lead to a diverse yet unified church, is this, that true wisdom and power are found in Christ alone, that the wisdom and power of God are found in Christ alone, no one else and nothing else. And Paul states that repeatedly throughout the rest of the chapter. In verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power power of God. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. Church, the wisdom and power of God are found in Christ alone. They are not found in a public figure. They are not found in a media outlet. They are not found on a YouTube channel or a podcast. They're not found in a mentor. They're not found in your favorite author, blogger, vlogger, vlogger, you know, whatever it is. They're not found in any, they're not found in your favorite pretty little Instagram feed. The, the wisdom and the power of God are found in Christ Jesus alone. And I want you to look at how carefully Paul says it in verse 18 because it is so subversive. It is subversive to the world's offer of wisdom from a million different voices. Look at what he says. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now there we would expect Paul to say something different because he's contrasting something, right? So we would expect him to say that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. But he doesn't call it the wisdom of God there. He especially calls it the power of God. And power because... uh, that wisdom is proved by its power to transform lives. That's what Paul is saying, that the cross looks like foolishness to the world, but it's actually the power of God, which justifies it as true wisdom, because when people adopt the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus, it powerfully transforms their lives. And that's what God's wisdom does, is it transforms transforms hearts, and it transforms minds, and it transforms thoughts and beliefs and desires and individuals and community. Paul was watching the world's wisdom turn the Corinthian church from a united church into a divided popularity contest. But what Paul personally knew of the wisdom of God is that it transformed haters of people into lovers of people. What Paul knew about the wisdom of God is that it transformed persecutors of the church into builders of the church, into haters of Jesus, into lovers of Jesus. So Paul says, the proof is in the pudding. Your wisdom is not good. And for us today, we need only to look at the outcomes that so much of the so-called wisdom is not good. At the very least, the wisdom of 
your favorite people online or wherever else cannot transform at the heart level. And that doesn't mean that they don't have some good things to say, but none of it is truly transformative like the wisdom and power of God found in Christ. Consider that not even God's perfect law in the Old Testament could transform the heart of the Israelites. Why would we think that the latest podcast can go further and do more? But people keep looking to the wisdom of the world. People outside the church and people in the church keep looking to the wisdom of the world because the gospel looks like foolishness and living the gospel story feels like logical nonsense. And that's why Paul says in verse 27 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. But again, wisdom is proved by its power. What that means is that God's wisdom isn't typically in the thing that uses guilt or shame or manipulation, that tries to control people, that God's wisdom isn't usually in the thing that tries to grab a hold of power as though power were, were our savior. God's wisdom is not in any of those things. God's wisdom is in laying down our lives and in resurrection. God's wisdom is in laying down our life and trusting God to raise it up again. God's wisdom is in losing the status that comes from the world so that you can receive the status that is found in Christ alone. And that means that the role that we play in helping the world to see God's wisdom is in living God's way. That's what demonstrates that the gospel is truly the power of God. Now, I found myself wondering this week, and I'm gonna finish up in just a moment, but... I found myself wondering this week, how did the people of Paul's day get to the point where the material of a message was so irrelevant and that only the performance mattered? And then I found myself asking myself the question, how do we get to a point today where the material of a message was irrelevant and that only the performance matters? And I think it's because when a culture seeks for wisdom apart from Christ, well, that's the only place that you can arrive. Is where it's all about performance and not about material. If you look at the arc of history, right, you think about the Enlightenment and how that ushered us into our modern era, which focused very much on seeking for knowledge and truth by reason alone. And there was a discounting of God, a discounting of Christ, a discounting of Scripture. And mankind goes on this journey to seek for wisdom uh, apart from Jesus. And then what's the reaction to the modern era but the postmodern era, which is a rejection of truth completely. And now it's, we're in a place where it really is only about the most impressive, impassioned voice in the room that, and that's all of a sudden that person's truth becomes the presiding truth for that day. Because when you seek for wisdom apart from Christ, you ultimately end up in a place where material doesn't matter. It's just about performance. And this is why the self-help section in every bookstore, online or otherwise, will always be full because they will never stop running out of new breakthrough ideas and methods. But if it had the power to change a life at the heart level, they would have stopped writing books. Jesus said in Luke 7, 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. And here Paul justifies the wisdom of the cross by the fact that it powerfully saves us and produces deep change in our lives. And that powerful wisdom we ought to cling to now more than ever because the world has mediocre solutions at best and it's got really bad solutions more often than not. And those solutions are expressed through lots of mediums and channels and voices. But the gospel is the powerful solution of God for the human condition, for the human heart, and for humanity's future. 
that cross-shaped way of living that Paul is calling us into. Again, that's self-sacrifice for the glory that comes from God. The message of the world is power by any means necessary and giving into the fleshly desire of controlling other people. And here's the thing, and I'm just close with this thought, that you might be trying to live a cross-shaped life, but if the prevailing voices in your head are living another kind of life, well, how is that gonna shape your life? How will that affect your ability to be united in Christ, to edify the body, and to advance the gospel? It is only the cross-shaped life that leads to that fellowship of the Son. Now, here's the thing. This kind of unity, it's not gonna revolutionize the world in a day. And that's gonna have to be okay with us. But what it will do is it will cause the church to be the church. And then God will use the church to reach the world. And if you think that Christians have to change the world in a day, it will lead you to either apathy or stupidity. Like you'll just get overwhelmed, like, yep, can't do this, no point trying. Or you'll get into that humanistic problem-solving way of doing things and you'll try to operate apart from God. We have to understand that Christians ultimately aren't called to change the world. We can hardly change ourselves. Christians are the world changed by Jesus. And when the church gets on in the way that the New Testament teaches us to, in the way that Paul is gonna teach us to in 1 Corinthians, God will use that to change the world. So that even in changing the world, it becomes something that we can't take credit for. So that verses 29 through 31 come true. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us not just wisdom from God, but righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that is exactly the model that Jesus set forth for you and I, that though he was in the form of God, well, what did he do? He took on human flesh. He became incarnated among us. He laid his life down. He gave up what he had so that he could reach people where they were. And that in his resurrection, it's the glory of God shining upon him, not the praise of mankind. Let's all stand to our feet. Just lift your hands to heaven. Those of you outside, those of you watching online, why don't you stand with us as well? We're gonna spend a few moments worshiping. My prayer right now is that the model of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus would capture your attention and lead you in into a kingdom way of thinking and a kingdom way of imagining the future, a kingdom way of envisioning the church, united in Christ, using our gifts to build one another up, advancing the gospel. Come Holy Spirit, come and have your way in this room. Come and have your way in our midst today that we'd be so impacted by you. Thank you, Jesus.